0: in the same vein, we need not just the same old people at the table, we need new people at the table and people with different lived experience at the table to ensure that, that we can kind of make the best use of the capital we've all collected.
1: Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of change makers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise change maker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. For our last interview of the season, we're headed to Portland, Oregon, to chat with Rick Tarosi. As Silicon Florist and co-founder and general manager of the Portland Incubator Experiment, Rick has been supporting founders in the Portland startup community for 15 years. We talked about how you might plan for succession as a keystone in your community, how you transfer social capital, and how you might leverage your social capital to put the next generation of ecosystem builders in place. Even though he will never say so himself, Rick is an institution in the Portland startup community. And I couldn't think of a better guest to close out this season. Victor Rossi, it's so good to see you. It has been, it has been way too, it's been forever. I don't actually remember the last time I saw you. (laughs) But this is a bit of a cheat question because I did actually get to come to Portland, Oregon a few years ago and see you in action. But for those listeners who have not been to Portland, if they were to come and visit you for the first time, where would you take them?
0: That's a, that's a great question. I mean, Portland is has a very small town feel to it, even though it's a metropolitan area of 3.5 million people or so. And really the magic of Portland is not any one specific place, but all of the little places. So like ideally, if someone were coming to visit, they'd get an opportunity to try a couple of our amazing coffee shops like Deadstock Coffee is one of my favorite ones. It's founded by a former Nike shoe designer who hadn't it. So it's a sneaker themed coffee shop which is perfect for Portland. Cause if folks don't know, uh, Nike is headquartered here. Uh, Adidas North American headquarters is here. We just had, um, all birds set up a location here under Armour's here. We have a lot of footwear in town. So a footwear themed coffee shop makes sense. And we just have a lot of really nice, quaint, small, restaurants that are, are great places to socialize and run into people and that kind of stuff. And then of course, uh, craft brewing is a huge part of our culture too. So making the time to stop at a at a brew pub would probably make sense or two while people were here. Those are, those are always the things we like to show off. And because the town is so small, those are also the opportunities for random collisions with people in the community. Inevitably, you will run in to somebody you know that you could then introduce the visitors to.
1: Fantastic. I was just thinking back to the Startup Champions Network summit that you hosted about four years ago, I want to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so.
1: And we got such a deep insight into all the amazing stuff going on in Portland. There was, um, I don't know if I remember this correctly, the Mercado. Is it the Hispanic sort of marketplace and community of entrepreneurs?
0: It's really a food accelerator so like yeah they have food carts there they do they have a a full-on grocery store there they have a kind of startup bar area as well and it's all focused on hispanic and latinx founded companies
1: that's so amazing zebras unite was somewhat i don't know that it was born in portland but when zebras unite started out a lot of the founders were in portland and i think astrid is still there
0: astrid's still here yeah motto has moved away but yeah astrid and motto were here and then um, Jen and Ania were other places, but yeah, the, we've always we've always had a very um, robust zebra community around here, for sure.
1: Yeah, I would almost call it a counterculture to a lot of what the typical startup community <laughs> looks
0: like. Well, yeah, one could say that for sure. In fact, I don't. This is random, but uh, and and will be. Significant history by the time this actually airs, but I don't know if you've ever met Yoshi from uh, Zebras Tokyo. He's in town today, and so we'll be meeting up later in the day. So, yeah, just random stuff.
1: Holy smokes. I love it. Portland. Everyone, if you haven't been to Portland yet, go to Portland. If you can, go in October when Rick is absolutely overcommitted, running an accelerator, organizing a demo day and uh, will not be reached. But he will probably still make time to talk to you at 7 in the morning because that's I the kind try. of person you are. So um, you don't know this, Rick, but when I was reaching out to our network about this season to talk about social capital, trust building, managing conflict, More than one person said, well, you got to have Rick on. I'm like, yeah, I had a feeling, but now I'm definitely validated. So (laughs) I can't (laughs) wait to dive deeper into this. You've been doing this work for a very long time. And when I interviewed you... 15 years uh, or so
0: at this point.
1: I interviewed you a while ago for uh, the written version of Social Venturers. And one of the things you told me was, I could do this work elsewhere. I just don't want to if it's going to be Portland. I don't want to parachute into other communities and and do the work elsewhere. You're really a Portlander by heart. Is that what you call yourselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, a- yeah it's a, I'm, I'm very place driven, place motivated. Um, I think I've learned a lot that is um, possibly could be applied elsewhere, but you know, I kind of think of it like a, a scientist in their lab, right? Like I know where everything is. I know how everything works. I can test different things here in Portland. And if they happen to work here, they might work somewhere else. And and we're happy to kind of export or open source those ideas. But I prefer to just like focus on this community because as we all know, every community has more than enough problems to solve. So there's there's plenty of work to be done here.
1: Perfect. Um, This really fits in with a couple of things. Um, For example, the pie cookbook. You have been always called your accelerator and experiment. The pie stands for the Portland... Incubator experiment, experiment, which I love that approach. Uh, Secondly, I hope that this episode can be some of that knowledge transfer to other ecosystem builders around the US and beyond. And thirdly, the fact that you have been doing this for over 15 years leads to my next question around conflict. You've been in the field for a long time. You've seen a lot of conflict, micro, macro, from all different angles and perspectives, and there's one conflict you are currently Working through. Tell us a little bit more about that, please,
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I love doing this work, and I could continue doing it for a long time. But uh, especially in smaller communities, it feels like there's often that one community builder, ecosystem builder that people know everybody introduces folks to and and kind of is the hub of connecting dots in the community right and that's the, that's the role i serve and i really enjoy and i'm humbled that people trust me with that role in the community but being quite honest i'm also a single point of failure like if i were to stop doing it tomorrow or go away or be you know have to move or something along those lines then then that would detract from a lot of the the community dynamic or a lot of the connectivity in the community. And so one of the conflicts I'm wrestling with personally is how do you be that known entity and do the work of connecting the community but at the same time provide opportunity and space for others to really kind of be the 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 next generation of, of community folks who are, who are guiding the community and connecting those dots. And, and one of my worries is like figure, my conflict is figuring out how to create that space. How do I keep doing the work but also illuminate that there are hundreds if not thousands of other opportunities for folks to engage in the community and, and be stewards of community in a meaningful way that this isn't just a, a job for a single person to do. And, and ideally, you know, figuring out a way where there are numerous other people who have 15 years of energy to to put into the community. Cause I don't know that I have another 15 years of energy to put into the community at this point. So that's my that's my current conflict for sure.
1: Was Joe Marushak from your community?
0: He was from just south of our community. So he was from a town called Eugene. Eugene is where the University of Oregon is um and it, it's a much smaller community than ours but it's it's a college town too so it it has some kind of artificial community uh or population that that occurs during the school year and um joe had been an entrepreneur in eugene that had kind of then morphed into uh you know he started an accelerator there he ran a bunch of events there he helped build community he raised a fund that was focused on investing in that community. And only that community was very geographically specific. And, uh, and so he and I, like, you know, we're in one another's DMS constantly or texting one another. And, uh, you know, he, he just kind of got to the point where he's like, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not getting the support I need. I'm burning myself out time and time again. And I just, I just can't continue doing this. I need, I think, and and, and I hope Joe is okay with me saying this, but I I've always felt like he needed more support that just was never there for him.
1: So he stepped away.
0: So he left. Yeah, completely. Not only just stopped community building; he left the state. Like, so he's back east now. Um, we're obviously we're still in communication and. Um, you know, I wasn't sure what would happen with Joe, like whether he would, um, you know, just kind of stay away and not do community building work anymore. But I'm already seeing signs of him mm. re-engaging with community and helping the, you know, helping the local universities and all. That. He can't stay away from it. I think he's just he's been refreshed by a by a change of scenery for sure.
1: Excellent. If you were to pull the plug tomorrow, mm-hmm. obviously there would be a void. How are you thinking about succession planning now? What are you, is is there anything you're actively pursuing? Are you just not responding to emails for a week to see if someone else will step in? <laughs> How is that process working? No, a
0: little bit of that, yeah. No, that's a great question. Like, actually that's kind of what I'm doing in that I'm, dialing back a lot of my activity to, um, just see what happens. Like, I think in some respects the entire tech startup community is going through a lot globally right now because of macroeconomic things. And, um, and we're coming out of the pandemic, like events are still wonky and aren't really working. So it's a, it's a good time to just step back, see if somebody else steps up and starts doing things. And if they do, when I see that, like I actively promote that, try and get them the attention and, and audience that they deserve. Um, But I'm, I'm also trying to think through like what would inspire somebody to step in to that kind of role. Like, do I, do I need to start mentoring folks on how I did what I did? Do we need to come up with a, like a scholarship or a grant program that says, you know, if you have a, if you have a community idea that's focused on Portland, we're going to fund that, you know, and find you, find you event space and, and, sponsorship and and those kind of things like i'm just trying to think through ways to stimulate the activity because all the work i've done came out of the last downturn so during the mortgage crisis in 2007ish like that's when a lot of my work started and really really took off and so what i'm hoping is we'll see that same kind of activity coming out Of the of the pandemic and the the economic downturn. Now that being said, I also want to say that all of the all of my comments are very much based on software technology, web-based technology, kind of startups. I would say, uh, you know, a, a peer of mine, Mitch Doherty, who works in the consumer products industry, he definitely like he's he's got that community it's an amazing group of people. I just kind of hang around on the fringe and and help out where I can. But like, I feel like that's another interesting part of the conflict. I'm like, maybe we're not meant to be a tech startup town. Like maybe that's not what Portland is best suited at doing. Maybe it would make more sense to double down on consumer products, which seem to be doing really, really well. Um, we see a lot of interesting and innovative kind of product ideas coming out of Portland and Oregon. Um, there's a wealth of talent in that regard and experienced mentorship. And so so that's the other part I think I'm kind of conflicted on is like you've spent 15 years working on this particular sector. That wasn't wasted time. And and I, I as I said, I've learned a ton and I've really enjoyed it, but I, it feels like in kind of Sisyphean mythology, it feels like the rocks rolled back down the hill again, and I'm not so sure I want to try and roll it back up this time. It might be better to start pushing a different rock that has a few more people pushing on it.
1: I was going to say, maybe you need more people pushing that rock.
0: Right, right.
1: How, how did you get here? How, how did you become such a keystone in your community that now succession planning... Is a challenge. Talk to me more about that.
0: Yeah. um, It's a, it's a, there's a cultural dynamic in Portland that is equal parts like quaint and charming and equal parts infuriating. And that is, it's a big enough town to be statistically relevant, but it's a small enough town that one person can still make a difference. That's the great part about the town. The challenging part is everybody still thinks it's a small town. They think it were like 50,000 people or something. So if like one person is doing something, they're like, oh, we checked that box. We don't need anybody else doing that work because that person is doing that work. And so a lot of it just came from, I just started doing something and people went, well, Rick must be the person who does that thing. It wasn't, I don't think it was me in particular. I think it was just like it could have been anyone who started doing a thing and people would have just gone oh that's your thing now you go do that and we will send people your way when it it's part of your thing and um and and that's the dynamic of the town's culture it's nothing specific I did um I think the only key insight I had was really the power of story not only in in communicating about what I saw happening, but in validating founders and entrepreneurs that in that even one other person helping to tell the story they're trying to tell is a huge lift for an entrepreneur because they're, you know, they're, as we all know, they're constantly like struggling and stressed and banging their head against the wall. Like even one bright spot can sometimes be that spark that really helps people. And so my way of doing that was was really just writing about the people I was talking to and and sharing their stories with a with a broader community. And then eventually that evolved into, you know, kind of like retweet more than you tweet kind of behavior um around the community and you know started a few events and that and it all kind of snowballed. And when I look back of the kind of breadth of things I've had the opportunity to do. It's it's really a lot of stuff, but it was, it was very incremental. Like there's no way that I could have done all this stuff all at once. It had to be like just building upon each time. And um and again the length of time I've been doing it. I get bored. Like I like starting things. I'm not the person to optimize or grow things. So um so I just try a lot of things and start a lot of things. And most of the time they fail. And three months later, people forget we even tried to do that thing. But like every once in a while, it kind of works and it keeps going. And then we we let that thing keep going and then start something else.
1: I seriously doubt that most of the things you start fail, but I'm, I'm just going to leave that there for now.
0: I should make a list. <laughs> it would be like, it'd be really funny to see the list. Like, here are all the things we started that we thought were going to be amazing. And like, they... You know they totally sputtered after three months. and then and then there's also um this aspect of things that were formerly successful, that, through be it nostalgia or whatever, we assume they're always going to be successful, even though they don't really work anymore. And so I've noticed this I've noticed this behavior of trying to, like, especially coming out of the pandemic like trying to reboot events that used to work mm. 5 or 6 years ago and were really meaningful to the community but they're only meaningful to that subset of the community that participated in them at the time uh, or the or the organizers and i'm just watching like people bring those back and i'm like don't do that And I'm guilty of it as well. Like I bring some stuff back and the feedback I get is like, why would I go to that? That's not important. And I'm like, but this was so important, like five years ago, this was amazing and everybody connected and like, nah, not showing up. So, um, so yeah, I think we need to get over ourselves and get over that kind of, yeah, for lack of a better term, that kind of nostalgic approach to community. Like community needs to be constantly refreshed. It needs to be constantly tested. And we need to be using new and iterative ways of engaging the community, how and where they want to be engaged. And um, we can't just assume that because, you know, Ignite talks or a weekly happy hour happen to work for a period of time, that those things will always work with the community here in Portland. And Letting go of the past and and looking forward to what we could be doing rather than trying to recreate some community that we may have had prior to the pandemic.
1: This is very insightful. I get the sense that it is is always constantly reinventing itself and progressing, right? That's what we do as humans, ideally. So as community builders, as ecosystem builders, we want to shepherd that process along for a certain time. But you're right, maybe we're not always the best person to do that. And we need not even just younger people, but just some fresh ideas and people who identify more with the current state of entrepreneurship, innovation, startup, and not people like us who have done it for such a long time. I, um, I had Todd Knuckles from Lighthouse Labs RVA on the show a few episodes ago, and he said, Lighthouse Labs needed to grow, and I didn't feel like I was the right person to take it to that next step, which is the painful reality for many of us that sometimes it is time to pass the scepter to the next generation, in air quotes, but just see what else is out there for some fresh and new ideas. Hey there. While we're chatting about all things ecosystem building, I wanted to invite you over to socialadventurers.com, where you can find even more content and insights into what we're talking about. And if you want to be the first one to hear about new episodes, get some behind-the-scenes content, and you could use a heartfelt reminder that what you do matters, sign up for Impact Curator. Impact Curator is my curated love letter to our community that hits your inbox every two weeks. And now, back to the show. You've been in Portland for so long. You have a boatload of social capital. You know pretty much everyone, I assume, and have pretty good relationships. How can we transfer that kind of social capital to other to those who come after us? Or do they just have to do it themselves? Does does the social capital you have does it just continue to exist so you can go down to the brewery and have a beer with someone you know? Or is there value in trying to activate that to I don't know maybe put the next generation in a better position to to start off where you left off?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's something I think about often. I don't. I, it's so interesting that we we use the term social capital because it doesn't really behave like traditional capital. Like you can you can give social capital, or you can spend social capital, but I really struggled to figure out how you loan social capital to someone else, right? Like that person can earn social capital, but it's not really like they can borrow from somebody who has a trove of social capital. So, um, the, the transition planning kind of stuff where, um, I'm not really sure. You know, the, the state of Oregon is proposing some activities now to focus on um, really kind of the work I've done, but, but operationalize it and formalize it. And so they've established kind of a a group of entities that are focused on creating innovation hubs for, so not, we had tried this previously, one of the, Failed projects. We had tried to do a geographically oriented innovation hub, so like an innovation quadrant or an innovation hub, like you see a lot of cities doing with, you know, old campuses or you know sections of town. We worked on that for a few years, and just even if it hadn't started to um, to go downhill, the pandemic would have totally killed it off anyway. But Um, we tried it before, but we didn't really have any support from the state. It was, it was the city trying to, and folks in the city trying to, to make that happen. And I think now that the the state is kind of leaning into that work, um, I'm hopeful that with this, this broader group of Portland entities, all people working in innovation or startups, uh, or entrepreneurship kind of writ large, um. I'm hopeful there there can be some transition of that social capital in the way that you know each of us coming to the table has kind of our own community that trusts us and my hope is like maybe somebody who's like I would have never trusted Rick on any of this stuff, but I trust that other person at the table. And if that person trusts Rick, then maybe there's something there. So um, I'm hopeful that that can be some, some way to better align all the social capital that's out there. But in the, same, in the same vein, we need not just the same old people at the table, we need new people at the table and people with different lived experience at the table to ensure that that we can kind of make the best use of the capital we've all collected.
1: Something you said earlier is still sort of floating in my head where you said, if someone in a smaller town is already doing something, it may feel like that spot is already taken. So when I started this podcast, I thought, well, you know, we already had the Keystone, which was an amazing podcast. There's really no need for me to start another podcast. And I'm glad I did. Because I think that's what any field needs is constantly new people stepping in and saying, Rick is doing, for example, Silicon Florist, which is awesome. And I have the hunger and appetite to do something similar, something in that vein. I encourage everyone who's listening to this, who's thinking similarly, oh, I shouldn't do this because someone's already doing that. Go do it anyway. I mean, be gracious, be kind, be generous about the whole thing, but bringing your gift to your community in whatever shape or form you can means progress. And not everybody loves progress, but people like Rick love progress and are waiting for (laughs) the next wave of community builders to come in and contribute their part because that's the only way that our communities can really move forward.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's funny that, that occurs so much in Portland in kind of support or, or, um, or ecosystem builder or, or whatever, like in the infrastructure and the people who are helping the founders or the entrepreneurs that we've checked that box. Activity happens a ton. But the reason we're also inspired to do this work is because, from a founder entrepreneur standpoint, people are starting. Stuff all the time. Like it's, it, we have so many coffee shops. Just because someone is like, I have a slightly different take on how we should do coffee, or I think we should do our donuts this way, or I want a beer that tastes like this, and and they are not impeded by the fact that they're already hundreds if not thousands of other locations already doing that they're just like i'm going to i'm going to do that thing cuz that's the thing i want to do and so we have a very rich culture of do your own thing your own way from an entrepreneur perspective it just has never translated into the entities that support entrepreneurial activity
1: it's interesting in at least two ways number 1 it speaks for that abundance mindset of the pie is big enough, pie shout out, um, for all of us to do it. And I think secondly, the market will give you feedback. If they, if people say we don't want another coffee shop on this theme, they're not going to go there. They're going to go somewhere else and that will be the feedback that you need. But I think you're right, borrowing that into the entrepreneurial support space would give us more insight and would move us along so much more.
0: Yeah. But as, as you well know, we, and I'm really glad you touched on this, the work we do is very much a scarcity mindset. Like it's very much, well, if someone else is getting that dollar, that's a dollar I'm not getting. So like, it's got weird, weird competitive energy in a way that, um, that is the polar opposite of the entrepreneurial community, which is yeah you well, you want to do your thing. I did my thing. You should go try and do your thing. Like it's um, yeah, it's it's interesting that, that those those two kind of groups collide, but they have totally different mindsets about how things get done or what success means.
1: Because we're not drinking our own Kool Aid. So what I'm hearing is, hey. Ecosystem builders and entrepreneurial support organizations, and everyone who models in this pie, get comfortable with the idea that there are other ways to do the work, have an abundance mindset, and be more entrepreneurial about it. And then you will see who gravitates towards you and who doesn't. And then you can still decide whether you want to pursue or not.
0: Totally. Yep. Agree.
1: How do you build trust, Rick Tarosi?
0: It takes time. That first and foremost, you invest time. To build trust, I'm a huge fan, partly because I'm an introvert, of just showing up. Like, you don't, I think so many people are like, well, if I want to build trust, then I need to invite everybody in Mm -hmm. to my space or my worldview or whatever it is. And fact of the matter is you build trust by showing up where people are already doing things and supporting those people in the things that they do. And it doesn't, I'm not saying you like have to sponsor events or like try and be a speaker at those. I just literally show up and sit in a seat like that is the, that's the first step to building trust. And it's so simple and you could do that, you know, in many places you could easily do that two to three times a week in a variety of communities. And so when I started doing this work, that's basically all I did. I just showed up to every event that I had time to to attend and just listened and you know, tried to understand what the community was going through or what opportunities they perceived there to be. And then,, um, you know, after you show up, then you have to kind of have that you know give first mentality right so you're not you're not showing up to extract something from that community or to benefit in some way from that community you're showing up to understand what your role in that community could potentially be or what assistance you could provide or what insight you could provide for that community or even just like What can you internalize from that community that then you can then communicate to others about what you're seeing? So um, I think, you know, those are, those are the really, the, the keys for me doing that kind of stuff. And then, you know, always, I think the other key to building trust is always be as empathetic and humble as you possibly can. Like that, that is key to building trust with folks um and you know you don't you don't get to be the person bringing people in until much much further down the road um and it takes time but it you know it um that just using those kind of seemingly simple things you will start to develop trust with not only individuals in the community, but, but groups within the community. And um, and it's very much a kind of put your money where your mouth is behavior. Like, don't talk about a community you would like to support or don't, you know, throw sponsorship dollars at a community you think you should support. Show up and sit in a seat when they're doing something. Like, be there. And that's that's the first step.
1: All right, I can't let this go because... <laughs> I know you don't like being called an ecosystem builder, but to me that is, it takes an ecosystem builder mindset as I define ecosystem building to just go and show up and support. It doesn't cost you any money and what you get out of it is not the typical thing that most people want to get out of something. The question, what do I get out of showing up at an event is that's not what this is about. So to me, that is ecosystem building one-on-one which I know you refuse to wear that badge. <laughs> but, so thank you for coming on the show that is about ecosystem building when you don't call yourself an ecosystem builder. I I
0: need ecosystem builders. Like I, you know, and, and um, you know, this was a conversation when I was asked to join the board of the Startup Champions Network, which is very much ecosystem builders. And I'm like, you need to understand I'm not an ecosystem builder i'm here as the voice of someone who relies on ecosystem builders to do the work i do and so that's the perspective i wanted to bring to the organization um because to explain why i don't think of myself as an ecosystem builder like i just like founders i only do what i do because i i like helping founders and I like helping founders because I tried to be a founder a couple times and I recognize how difficult it is. And I recognize that, um, you know, you, you will never have enough support as a founder. And so I really enjoy working with founders. Anything else that happens to enable me to work with founders is just fringe benefits. It's nothing strategic. I'm not a systems thinker. Um, sometimes I have to talk to government entities or educational institutions, but it's, there's no strategy there. And, and so I rely on ecosystem builders because they do have that systemic view. They do talk to everybody and, and figure out all the pieces and parts and how people can play nicely together. And I have to rely on the folks who are engaged in that activity to enable me to do the thing I want to do.
1: We talked about trust, and I don't know that you are ever intentional about building trust, about building up your social capital. Can you think of an experience or a situation where that was violated, where either trust was broken, trust was misused? And you don't have to name names, obviously, but I have to imagine in a 15 plus year career, this has come up for you in the past.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've had, we've had our run-ins with, you know, and so we run a startup accelerator program and we, you know, the, the selection process is not perfect. And so sometimes we've, we've wound up with bad actors either on the mentorship side or, or on, uh, on the startup side. And that's just the nature of, of doing that work, you know, early in the, um, early in this last generation of the startup community, we had an, an incredible nonprofit organization that was established to run community events. So they, if folks are familiar with the Ignite format, they had an Ignite, they ran a bar camp, which is an unconference format. Uh, They started, um, we used to be the home of OSCON, which is the O'Reilly conference for open source. It's the largest open source software conference in the world. And Portland was the home of that for a long time. They developed a counter um, event to that one because OSCON was becoming very corporate and they wanted to get back to like supporting open source developers. And so they built open source bridge. Um, the way trust was violated was one member of that organization embezzled a ton of money and basically killed the organization. Ooh. And it was one of those times that that was a significant blow to the community because this was this linchpin of creating these events and managing all this activity. And it, it, it really put a dent in the community for a long time, and it took us a long time to recover from that. And that was just one person. Again, like it's a it's a big enough town to be statistically relevant, but it's it's still small enough that one person can make a difference. Sometimes that difference isn't a good difference, and um, and so that really negatively impacted our community, and and probably made people even more cautious. Um, probably took a little bit of wind out of that experimentation or I'm going to try and start to do my own thing because there was now that example of, well, if I do that, there's the potential that this could also happen to me. And, um, and so, yeah, like those are, those are the ones that that really stick in my mind, um, over the course of the last 15 years that have been such an explicit betrayal of trust that have had significantly negative impacts on the community.
1: How did you navigate through that? What was your what was your first response? What was your second response? And did that inform how you approach your work after that had happened?
0: My first response was to immediately engage with all the other members of the organization because there probably like six people, eight people, something like that. Immediately engage with everybody else and be like. Are you okay? What can I do? How can I help? Um, And then, you know, the other one was specifically with Open Source Bridge, folks were very interested in that conference continuing because it was less about pure local engagement and more about a broader community engagement within the open source community. And so, I immediately volunteered to be on the the organizing board of that event um and really tried to help take that to the to keep it at the same level but also kind of improve upon it and then um you know just tried to continue to support the the individuals who were affected by that situation but for a lot of them that was that was that betrayal of trust was enough to uh, have them completely check out like we completely lost some amazing community folks because of that situation um a few of them continued to do events and that kind of thing but they just weren't really um interested in a larger organization format they were doing it as individuals um So uh, I don't know that we've ever actually recovered from that, if I'm being perfectly honest about it. Um, But to my earlier point, that may be me being nostalgic about the events that they used to run because they they were so critical to the community at that point in time.
1: Did this incident change anything about how you approach community building and working with founders?
0: It was a cautionary tale. Like just you know, know who you get, know who you're getting involved with, and um, and you know, get things <laughs> get things down on paper. Have some governance. Have checks and balances. Like I think a lot of this, I think a lot of the situation was enabled by the fact that the organization was not terribly well organized, and you know, there was one person who had access to the bank account and could write checks. And, um, and so, yeah, just, I think more, if I'm starting something new now, I tend to approach them with more rigor and, and kind of process and paperwork. And, um, and I'm a little less, uh, freewheeling than I used to be with organ. We're formalizing things. Like we still do things where it's like, Let's try this thing and we let's, you know, let's not mess it up with a bunch of process and stuff. But if it becomes a thing and becomes real, then, you know, it's always better to do all the paperwork and sign all the things when everybody's still happy with one another and and you know and can still have um productive conversations and not arguments. And so, yeah, like I just try and be a little more cautious in that regard. But again, it doesn't prevent me from doing things. It probably prevents me from formalizing things more, but it doesn't prevent me from trying things and doing things.
1: Good. I'm happy to hear it because when I hear formalizing and contracts and, you know, setting up checks and balances and lawyers, I'm like, but I trust you, we don't need paperwork. But you know, in the long run, it actually builds more trust to say, hey, if I'm gonna work with Rick, I know that he's gonna have his ducks in a row. I know that he's taking care of the overall, be it the process or the organization. So I think it 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 builds more trust long-term to know that people take it seriously enough that they have the best interest of the, the process and other parties in mind. So ecosystem builders don't get discouraged. It doesn't destroy trust if you bring paperwork to the table. It actually lays a foundation for more trust, I think, to build and prosper early on in the process. Um, Rick, I know personally, you and I were on a panel to talk about, I think right when the pandemic was breaking out that first summer, we talked about the role of ecosystem builders as second responders. You have given a lot of yourself to your community. And I know you've come close to burning the candle on both ends several times. How do you take care of yourself when something else blows up? There's a really ugly conflict you feel like you should be solving. What does that retreat moment look like for you?
0: It's a good question. I don't know that I do a very good job of it. I've kind of ingrained some of that refreshing into pi itself so pi is very cyclical it's a um i i'm a dumb jock so i refer to it as kind of like a it's it's like a professional sports team right like you have the preseason. that's like when you're doing the applications and all that kind of stuff and then you have the season And that's when the accelerator is going and then you have a substantial off season when you take time to reflect and rebuild Mm -hmm. and, and think about what you're going to do next. And so I have, I've adjusted to that cadence that even though, you know, a week before demo day, I am recognizing that I'm completely burnt out. I know that within a few weeks I will have the opportunity to, to reset and recover. In that regard, I think um, you know when when other things happen in the community, uh, you know I have a tendency to listen and discuss privately and um, stay out of the public kerfuffle. Um, I. I've never seen any value in getting into the the public back and forth on those things. I'd much rather have conversations with, with people in a, in a private setting and, and figure out what's what. Um, you know, there are some times when I've kind of leaned into being more public about concerns or conflicts or those kind of things. And it's just never, it's not my, personality to approach things that way. And, and it's never resulted in anything positive or meaningful change. So, um, there are some people that are very good at public discourse around conflict and I am not one of those people. Uh, and so I just kind of, I, I leave that to folks to, um, to work it out in, in a public setting, but I would much prefer to just be behind the scenes. That's how I protect myself. And then, um, a lot of it is just like giving yourself permission to, to check out from time to time. Like if it took 15 years to get to this point, like stepping away for a couple of weeks is not going to cause 15 years to fall apart. So, um, you know, just giving yourself permission to give yourself the time you need to recover. And I think the other thing is, um, you know, I've I've always been amazed at the people whose brains work where they're like, "Well, I've saved up this much money, so I'm going to leave this job, and I'm going to give myself three months to find my next job, and here's the plan for doing that." Um, that would stress me out. Like, I cannot I cannot set parameters on my recovery time. So, like, sometimes I'll be feeling burnt out and. Stepping away for a few days, or like actually having a real weekend, or you know just going to the coast, or whatever, like that'll be enough, and I'll be back. Sometimes, you know, I have to lay in fetal position in a corner for three months before I feel like I've got the (laughs) energy back. So, I I cannot set those parameters. I can't say explicitly, oh, I know at this level of burnout, it's going to take me this much time to recover. I just have to say. You're burnt out. go try and recover and give yourself the space and time to do that.
1: Yes, I agree. And what you said about being in the public eye of the discussion, a, a theme that I've heard throughout this season is if you're in a position to resolve conflict or try to manage conflict, always do it one-on-one first. Yeah. before you go and shout it out into the world without having consulted with the parties. Um, So that just seems to come very natural to you. And uh, I think that's what makes you such a champion and advocate internally, is that people know that you will show up for them and have that conversation before you build an opinion or talk to anyone else externally about what just happened. So I appreciate that, and I have a feeling your community does too. Um, Rick, A one last longer question before we get to the rapid fire round. Do you have any inkling whatsoever about what's next for you?
0: You know, again, as we've touched on a little bit, like I'm really concerned about this succession planning, not only for the community, but Pi. Like it's just, it's if Pi and, and I've had a ton of conversations about, are we just being nostalgic about Pi? Is it time for Pi to be done or is this an entity beyond me that has value for the community and who is the next who's the next person to to take pie to the next stage um, so a lot of that's where my head is a lot these days um you know we ran a short experiment this class trying to determine if we could have any significant impact on our neighbors who are experiencing houselessness in the community and and we had we learned a lot from that experiment and so i would like to take some of those learnings and kind of iterate and and continue that that program and figure out if we can we can have some impact the the top level learning was um it's very difficult to have positive impact on people who are directly dealing with the houseless population so like if you're a service provider who you yeah. know your community kitchen or your building housing or, you know, you're managing leases or whatever it is, like, it's really hard to be helpful to those people because they're so understaffed and under resourced and we just become another burden on their time. But adjacent projects or tangential projects, we can definitely have effect on. So, um, just trying to figure out the structure of that thing. And then, you know, I I back to taking my own medicine. You know, we're always telling mentors how like common sense is not common and your very most basic knowledge is like a revelation to a startup founder. Like you think it's obvious, but it's not obvious. So please tell people those stories or like share that information. And I, I think that's probably what I need to start doing next is all of this stuff that's built up in my head get that out there and either document it or present it or share it or whatever, but find a way to codify some of these learnings that, that I've built up over the years and make them more accessible to people than having to sit down with me and, and talk through it. So I think that's probably the next the next big thing for me.
1: I love it. That's huge. I think that sounds amazing. Please write it down speak it out, record it, like any medium that works. And I will be here listening and watching from the sidelines and say, we should have Rick back on the show so we can all learn from him. Thank you so much. You have such a deep well of knowledge and I love that you share it. Um, for all of our listeners, if you're as intrigued as you should be about Rick to Rossi now, please head over to pypdx.com to find out more about Pi and do check out Silicon Florist, which is not a florist company, but actually <laughs> a news outlet about everything that is happening and shaking in the Portland, Oregon startup community. And people can probably best connect with you on Twitter, as long as it's not October.
0: Yeah, Twitter is usually the easiest way. I'm not terribly good with keeping up. I, I, I notice a lot of people are more Instagram DME these days, and um, I'm, I'm always... Like, I've spent a significant time on Twitter. We'll see what happens with Twitter in the coming months. But um, that for now, that is generally the best
1: place to catch me. And do follow Rick on Instagram anyway, because his content is hilarious. And it's a, <laughs> it's a really good insight into startup life. So I do encourage it. All right. We are about to launch our very brief rapid fire round. I'll give you the beginning of a sentence or ask a question and you answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Great. Social capital is?
0: Social capital is critical to startup ecosystems.
1: Who is one ecosystem builder who's really good at building social capital?
0: Stephen Green.
1: What is one resource that has had such an impact on you that you would recommend it to other ecosystem builders?
0: Mm. Oh, that's good. Like, ugh, so many. Uh...
1: You can give me more I, than one.
0: Okay. Yeah. Like, obviously I'm biased, but Startup Champions Network has been hugely valuable to me. Um, I always recommend that. Uh, you know, there's some great, even just Slack instances for community builders, like um, Community Club and some other things like that. Uh, yeah, there have been so many, but those are the, the first two that immediately jumped to mind.
1: Super, I'm gonna plug the Startup Community Way, which Rick has actually contributed to. So if you wanna read some of his musings over Startup Community Building, pick up that copy, which is probably on most people's shelves by now. Rick, thank you for your time. You have visitors from Japan today and you still made time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. it. And I can't wait to see what your next steps look like. So keep me posted.
0: I don't know what it's gonna be, but it'll be something.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Rick.
0: <laughs> See you later.
1: To learn more about Rick's work, head to and siliconflorist.com. I'm excited to pick up the topics of succession planning and the evolution of an ecosystem builder in Season 5, which will air in early 2023. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Monacan, Shawanda Setula, and Monahawk people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay respect to Ella's past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.